communion together before we sing a closing song. So that's what's happening for the rest of the day. Uh, You know, each week as a pastor, I have this great privilege of spending about two to three hours a week studying one passage of Scripture. I do this in preparation to stand behind, or most of the time actually on the side of, this pulpit and preach to you the Word of God. I'm grateful for the privilege and I do feel the weight of this responsibility. And I spend that time studying because I know that what you need is not some 41-year-old's opinion about things. I know that what you need are not my entertaining stories. I know that what you need are not some lame dad jokes from a guy like, I mean, I like them, and I've got one for you. You want to hear one? So uh, this is not what you need. I know it. But so I went to the doctor this week and told him that I keep hearing this buzzing in my ears. I asked him, like, what, what's, what's the deal? I keep hearing this buzzing in my ears. And the doctor told me, well, there's just a bug going around. So, um, so that's it. See, like, you don't need that. Like, you don't need me to do that every week. So I don't. Like, that might be the first joke I've told in like eight and a half years because my jokes are lame. Here's Here's what is powerful, though. What is powerful is the very Word of God. And so that's what I come into the pulpit wanting to communicate with you. So I spend some time each week studying so that what the Scripture text says is what I want to communicate. What the tone of the text is should be the tone of the message that I share with you. I want us to understand it. I want us to feel it, right? I want us to be shaped and molded by it and changed because we sat under the preaching of God's Word. So I preach a sermon and there's application points. Uh, I mentioned life groups. We have life groups that are going to start to meet here pretty soon. And those life groups will gather together. uh, And in part, what they're going to be doing is digging a little bit deeper into the application points of the message. Because we don't want to be people that just hear the Word, uh, but people whose lives are transformed by the Word. So, I want to preach the word that we might hear it and allow it to affect how we think and how we feel and how we live. Today, though, we are looking at a longer passage of Scripture. We've been in this series in the book of Acts, and today we're looking at a passage that is 40 verses long. The majority of the passage, the interesting thing is, the majority of the passage that we're looking at today is actually a sermon. So I'm kind of preaching a sermon about a sermon, okay? So that's why if you look inside your bulletin, there's a sermon notes page, and you'll note that even the points of the sermon are uh, sermon notes, okay? So uh, we've got the setting of the sermon, the text of the sermon, application of the sermon, and then response to the sermon is what we're going to look at today. So our custom is usually that as I read the Word of God, the whole passage that we're going to be looking at that day, we stand. And we're going to do that, but rather than me reading all 40 verses while we're standing, we're going to stand here in just a moment. I'll pray, I'll read the first four verses, and we will, by the end of the sermon, have read through each of these verses, but we're not going to do it all at once while we're standing up. Ready? So let's go ahead and stand if you're able. I'll pray and then read the first four verses here of this passage. Father, 
thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells in all of us who believe. And I thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write every one of these words. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work now that you might build us up, that we might be more and more molded by your word so that we are the kind of people that you call us and equip us to be in this world for the good of others and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, God's word says this, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But They went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Amen. You can be seated. So that's the setting of the sermon, right? The setting is, remember, just a quick review for those of you who haven't been with us, the book of Acts is about how the work of Jesus continues through Holy Spirit-empowered believers who go to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria. And now just last week, we started this section in chapter 13 where the gospel is going now to the ends of the earth. We saw the first overseas mission trip take place, literally overseas, as Paul and Barnabas and John Mark get on a ship and sail to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. And now where we're at in verse 13 is they have finished their portion of the mission trip there and they've got on another ship and they're heading north to the mainland of what is modern day Turkey. So there's a map, I think, on the the next, there we go, map. So they started in Antioch of Syria, and they've gone over to the island of Cyprus. Now they went up to Perga, and the setting for today's message is a different Antioch. It's not the one they left from. It's Antioch in Pisidia, which is in modern-day Turkey, not modern-day Syria. So you kind of get where we're at geographically. Um, So that's, that's the setting of the sermon, and you noticed as I read that portion, that it says on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Antioch in Pisidia was a city in which many of the people in that city didn't worship the God of the Bible. Many of them worshiped the Roman emperor. So that was what was most common in that city. Most people in that city would worship the Roman emperor. Yet, even though it was pretty far away from Jerusalem, it was a city where a lot of Jewish people lived. And because a lot of Jewish people lived there, there was a synagogue in that city. And so on the Sabbath day, Paul, kind of as had become a custom a little bit for him, knowing that I'm going to find some Jewish brothers here who will be ready, hopefully, to hear the gospel, goes to the synagogue, and in the synagogue, the word of God is read. The Hebrew scriptures, the law, and the prophets. And then, did you hear that invitation? I love, I mean, what a great invitation. It said in verse 15, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. We just got invited to share the gospel with a bunch of people who desperately need to hear the gospel. If you got any word of encouragement, say it. 
So Paul stands up and motions with his hand. Some of you make fun of my hand motions. It's biblical. Paul did it. So do I, right? So, so he's motioning with his hands, and I, um, he says this, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Okay? He's just calling them, listen, and he's addressing them as men of Israel and you who fear God. So gathered in that synagogue are Jewish people, right? But also God-fearing Gentiles. So, so a mixture of Jew and Gentile gathered together in a synagogue, and Paul is now going to start preaching the sermon, and he begins by saying, listen. So that's the sermon setting, a Jewish synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia, now the sermon text. He addresses the audience, and then he gets, now, when, uh, when I preach a sermon, most of the time, it's about 15 verses or so that we cover on a Sunday morning. Today's a longer one, 40 verses. Paul's sermon text is pretty much the whole Old Testament and part of the Gospels, right? So, so he's biting off a big chunk of Scripture to all share in one sermon, so much so that he, he has to be very selective. You'll notice this. Right? He's very selective in what he chooses to share. But really, in the first verse of the sermon, verse 17, he's summarizing Genesis and Exodus. First two books of the Bible summarized in one verse, verse 17. Let's look at it. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. That's how his summary of the book of Genesis. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, God calling Abraham out of all the peoples on the earth, making a promise to him. So that's how he's summarizing Genesis. And then he summarized Exodus this way. And made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So God beginning to fulfill his promise to make a great people. They're in Egypt and God rescues them from slavery. That's the story of Exodus. He goes on, verse 18, and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that translation. You know, like, when you, so he's summarizing kind of the book of Numbers. If you read the book of Numbers, you see God's constant provision. So he could have said, and God provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness. But in the book of Numbers, you also read, don't you, the constant complaining and whining of God's people. And so instead of saying, for 40 years God provided for them, he's just honest. He says, for 40 years God put up with them in the wilderness, right? So God put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. Going on to verse 19, now he's summarizing the book of Joshua. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So now he's summarizing the book of Judges and 1st and 2nd Samuel. Then they asked for a king. Remember this? And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So there is his summary of the Old Testament, kind of walking us through God's promise to Abraham and God's promise to David. So it's walking us through the Old Testament 
And he's trying to prove one point. He's not just telling, retelling the story. He's retelling the story in order to prove a point. What's his point? That all of this, verse 23, was pointing to this. Of this man's offspring, okay? So, so from the line or a descendant of David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So Paul's summary of all of that, he he quickly summarizes all of the Old Testament in order to say it was all pointing to this one, Jesus. God fulfilled his promise by giving Israel a Savior named Jesus, one in the line of David. And then he starts to summarize the early parts of what would be the Gospels. They wouldn't have had them a written copy of them at this point in Antioch and Pisidia, but we have a written copy now where he says this in verses 24 and 25. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So the most recent prophet early in the New Testament Gospels is a guy we call John the Baptist. He's now referring to him. He too, just like the Old Testament books before him, pointed ahead to Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah, the Savior. And that's what John came to do as well. Right? Now, let's go back to verse 20, well not back, go ahead to verse 26. Because Remember who Paul is talking to. He's talking to a group of people gathered together in a synagogue, most of them likely Jewish and also some God-fearing Gentiles. So knowing his audience, he's going to start quoting a whole bunch of their scripture. So look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, another way to refer to the Jewish people, and those among you who fear God, that's the God-fearing Gentiles, right? To us has been sent the message of this salvation. So, so he, he, there's kind of like a, a climax here a little bit as he says, we've walked through all of your scriptures, scriptures that you've been learning since childhood, and I'm here to tell you the message of salvation is there. And it's found in this person, Israel's Savior and Messiah, Jesus. Look at verse 27 then. For those who live in Jerusalem... And their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Remember, they just got done reading the prophets on the Sabbath, right? And he's reminding them, listen, in Jerusalem, that stuff was read every Sabbath. But here's what they did. Fulfilled them by condemning him. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. So so Paul's getting to the heart of the gospel. All of scripture was pointing ahead to this Jesus, and then here's what happened. Though he had no guilt in him, he was condemned and executed. He was crucified, put to death on a cross, right? Verse 29, And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So Paul has an opportunity to stand up and talk to these people. What message is he sharing? He's starting where they're at. You know the scriptures. 
And I'm telling you, all these scriptures point to Jesus. And as he gets to Jesus, he's making sure he's telling them of his guiltless life, of his death, of his burial, and then the next verse, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead of his resurrection. The people there in Antioch and Pisidia needed to hear the gospel. And the gospel begins with Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 31 And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Right? A whole bunch of people, after Jesus was raised from the dead, got to see him. And they're out now. They're they're his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. Just continuing Jesus' work. I love Paul's proclamation of the gospel to the people there what Jesus has done. He continues then in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, okay? You've been waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He is quoting there. I told you he's going to start quoting a bunch of their scripture. He's quoting Psalm 2 verse 7. The resurrection of Jesus is a proof that Jesus is the king, God's son. That's what David or that's what Paul is saying in his sermon there. Then he goes on verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised them from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. Now he's going to quote Isaiah 55 verse 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Then he's got one more scripture quote. Verse 35, Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. That's Psalm 16, verse 10. And then he describes it a little bit. That's what you do in a sermon. You share God's word and then you try to explain it so they get it. He's making the connections for them. He says this in verse 36, For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So he's just pointing out, listen, you all think like David was this this prime example of the king, but David's dead. So these Psalms, they weren't all only about David because David's dead. He saw corruption. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. These are about Jesus. These things that you, as the, as the people of God, have been gathering together to pray and to sing throughout the centuries, the prophecies of the prophets and the psalms of the psalmist, all of those things, the law, everything pointing ahead to Jesus. You've been waiting for the fulfillment of the promise, and he is here. So David certainly making a strong case using a great sermon text, basically the whole Old Testament and what now we know as the Gospels, I think is a great sermon. But he's not done yet. Because a good sermon has some application points too, right? And what's the application point for the people there? What's the application of Paul's sermon for the people gathered there in Antioch and Pisidia? Let's look at verses 38 to 41. By the way, let me just point this out. When it comes to sermon application, 
Maybe some of you come from a tradition that heavily emphasizes like doing things. So sometimes, like maybe like church meant, I go to church, I hear a sermon, and then I have a list of how to, like a list of things that I need to go do now. Like I got homework from a sermon. Sometimes that is the right application. Sometimes scripture calls us to go and do something. But that's not the only kind of application that there is. There's also an application that is aimed at the mind. Sometimes the application of God's word is you need to change how you're thinking, right? And sometimes the application of God's word is your heart needs to be changed. Your desires need to be made new. Your, 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 the, the, the flame inside needs to be stoked a little bit. So, so a sermon's not just a homework assignment, like I'm your teacher telling you, now go do this, and then next week we'll get back together and I'm going to check your work, Right? A sermon's not just an information download, right? A sermon can be aimed at the heart as well. And I think Paul's really kind of doing all of these things, but primarily his application is aimed at their minds. You know, how, you know how I, I, why I think that is because he says it. Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. Right? He He wants something to be known to them. Something that they didn't get before, he's wanting to share with them some new information. He wants what was unknown previously to now be known to them. It's an application directed at their mind. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And... By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Two things that he wants them to know. I tell you this whole story of your whole scriptures, which you already, for the most part, probably knew. I summarized all of that, showed you how it pointed to Jesus as the Savior and Messiah, and I did this for two reasons, that you would know two things. One, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in His name. If you want to be forgiven, all of the things you've been doing with your diet, because, see, there was this recognition amongst the Jewish people that they knew that they didn't have on their own what it takes to be in fellowship with their holy God. And so, so they had all sorts of religious things that they would do from their diet to following a certain calendar and all of those things that they might come into the presence of God, that they might be clean to enter the presence. And Paul is saying to them, listen, if you want forgiveness of sins, like a once and all, everything paid for forgiveness of sins, it comes in Jesus. And number two thing for you to know, number two thing for you to know is that everything you've been seeking after to free you from all of that guilt, it doesn't work. Right? In the end, that's not the intention. The law of Moses reveals to you your sin, and Jesus has come that you might be freed from your sin. You're, you're enslaved to the law still. The law doesn't set you free. Jesus sets you free. Man, what do you think it would have been like for those people who had given their lives to try to live according to the law of God, eating certain things and not eating other things, being clean uh, ritually in certain ways and being avoid, avoiding being unclean, all of that stuff. Yet here, <laughs> they're told forgiveness of sins comes in Jesus and freedom doesn't come through the law, but it comes through Jesus. You get why Paul wants them to know this? They need to know this. 
And then he gives them a warning in verses 40 and 41. Part of the sermon application is a warning too. It begins in verse 40 with this word, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And now he's going to quote some scripture again, this time from Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He doesn't want them to have this reaction where he's telling them, listen, forgiveness of sins and freedom comes through Jesus, not through the law. He doesn't want them to have the reaction that says, no, I've worked too hard for this. That they would miss out on the work that God has done, because it's not about the work they've done. It's about the work that God has done in Christ. And so he uses one of their prophets to warn them, don't miss this. God is doing a work. God has sent His Son, Israel's Savior and Messiah, Jesus. Don't miss it. All right, so that's the sermon, and that's the application. What do they do in response? Sing a song, go home, watch TV. Football's on now, right? Is that, is that what they're going to do? What, what's the response? Well, like we've seen a lot in the book of Acts, it's mixed. Let's look at verse 42. One thing we see is hunger. Okay? The preaching of God's word has developed in the people gathered under the preaching of God's word a hunger for God's word. Look at what it says in verse 42. I would love this to be true about our church. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Like, I don't know if that's ever happened to me as a pastor. I get done preaching. People are like, ah, we gotta, you, are you going to be back here, right? I need more of this. Next Sunday, we're doing it again, right? But that's what they're doing with Paul. They begged him that on the next Sabbath he would say these things again. Like, I don't care if it's the same sermon. Let's go back to that whole part about everything pointing to Jesus. Just preach that one again. Right? Verse 43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. They got encouraged by the church. Like, hey, keep at it, brothers. Right? Then verse 44. This is still good news. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So there was, there was something about their hunger for the, the word of God that led them to talk to other people. And they invited somebody. Like, you got to come. you got to come and hear the word of God being preached. And so almost the whole city shows up on the next Sabbath. Man, it sounds really happy. And then look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So that's a possible response, isn't it? Some people hunger for more. Some people reject and revile. The message has been clearly heard. But it's not brought up in them a desire to repent and believe and receive and rejoice. But it's called up in them instead a rejection and a reviling of those that are proclaiming the message. That's what we see in verse 45. So Paul and Barnabas, they just give up? No, look at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Man, it must have pained Paul to say this. He's saying this to his Jewish brothers and sisters. Listen, 
it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. From now on, the target of Paul's ministry is not going to be his fellow Jews, but having had an opportunity to receive the message, but instead choosing to reject the message, Paul says, all right, I'm turning. Now the message is going to be aimed at the Gentiles primarily. And this isn't just like Paul's decision. This is what God had said. That's what he says in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now again, he's just quoting their scripture. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 49, verse 6. Just saying to them, this was God's intention. God's intention was not just to save one people group of all the people groups in the face of the earth. No, he was, his intention was that, that that people would be a light to those around them. And since you have heard this message and rejected it, you are unworthy of eternal life. If you reject the message of the gospel, you are unworthy of eternal life. And so he is now turning to the Gentiles. All right. He doesn't tell us right now how the Jews are responding to that, but he does tell us how the Gentiles did. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the spreading throughout the whole region. A couple things to note there. One, I think we need to note God's initiative in salvation, right? Those who were believed are the ones who God appointed to believe. As many as were appointed believed. And these Gentiles who had always probably been made to feel less than. Even as they gathered together in the synagogue, there were certain things I'm sure that they were not allowed to do as Gentiles and not Jews. And here, they're hearing this message that the God of the Jews is welcoming them. That, that the, the full benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ are not just for the Jews, but they're for the Gentiles. And so what's their response? They're rejoicing, right? They're rejoicing. This is, this is good news. They're rejoicing and then they go out, uh, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And then again, there's opposition, verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So, both. <laughs> What's the response to the gospel? Well, some rejoice in it, go share it with other people, and others reject it and revile them. Persecution comes about. Those in high power, influential positions use their influential positions to raise up people against these believers. Some wonder if this will become more common in our part of the world as people of high standing turn against the message of the gospel. So it's good for us to be aware of how the apostles respond here. Look at verse 51. 
but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. <laughs> They're like, all right, we, we've, we've preached the gospel. There are now a number of believers here in Antioch and Pisidia. They're going to have to figure out how to, how to but we got to leave. So Paul, Barnabas, now leave, and they go to another place. All right, we'll just go preach somewhere else then. And then listen to verse 52. And it's not like with an anger, like, oh man, how dare they try to stop the spread of the gospel? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight back against Rome. That's not it. They've been persecuted. And what's their response? Look at verse 52, last verse of the passage. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The, re, the, the response to their preaching of the gospel is some people have received it and are rejoicing and sharing it. Other people are rejecting it and reviling them, even persecuting to them to the point that it's dangerous for them to stay in the city and they need to leave. What's their response? Joy. Right? Their response is joy. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit that they might continue to do the work. So there, there we have it, Paul's sermon. Preached at a Jewish synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia, a sermon where the text was really the whole Old Testament and part of the Gospels, a sermon where the point was, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is Israel's promised Christ and Savior. Right? And a, and a message that called for a response. The application was, you need to know these two things. Know that forgiveness of sins and freedom come only through Christ. And then we saw the response, a pivot where now the gospel primarily going to be targeted to Gentiles in the ends of the earth. I just told you the story. I just preached this sermon. Let, let me just say that the application that Paul had for his audience in Antioch and Pisidia in the first century is not all that different than the application for us in the 21st century in Iowa Falls today. Like those people, we are guilty before God. Maybe you walked in here today with uh, an underlying sense of guilt. Like you know, even as we're singing songs of worship and praise, you know that there's a gap between our creator God who is holy and righteous and you who can't seem to get it together, right? Like you, you, you know that. And there's, so, so I think the, the Jewish people and the God-fearing Gentiles that Paul was preaching to, there was something about the human nature and about their religious background that reminded them again and again that they don't measure up. And many of you, even as you come in here, that might be how you feel. You sense your own guilt before God and you've tried hard to be good, to be religious just like they had done, but the guilt remains and you haven't been set free. Let me just share some bad news with you really quick. You're right. You haven't done enough. You're right. You don't measure up. Like I know some people would love to preach like a message like, you can do it. You got it. Like that, that, that's part of the message of the gospel. Part of the message of the gospel is you can't, right? You can't. You, you don't have what it takes. You haven't, you haven't worked hard enough to get there yet. 
You haven't done enough that your sin before a holy God has been done away with and overwhelmed by your good deeds. Like you're not there. And let me tell you this, work really hard for like three, four, five weeks and you're still not going to be any closer. That's the bad news. But the good news is the same that it was for the, the people there in Antioch and Pisidia. That forgiveness of sins and freedom comes through Christ. Forgiveness of sins and freedom comes through Jesus who lived a guiltless life, who lived a perfectly righteous life who died and was buried and rose again from the dead, that all who trust in him would receive his righteousness as he takes on our sin. This is the good news that we need to hear, that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Savior. And you haven't done enough, you're never going to be able to do enough, but he has done enough. He took on the full weight of our sin and the Father's wrath so that all who trust in Him receive forgiveness of sin and freedom from slavery to it. So, what's the application? Know this. Do you know this? Do you know this? How have you responded to that truth? One possibility for you is you could reject it and revile it. You could believe the lie that I'm not even worthy of that. You're getting close to the truth when you believe that you're not worthy. But if that's where you stop, you're not all the way there. You've got to believe the rest of the truth. That Jesus, who is worthy, died in your place for your sin. Please don't be one of those who hears this message, rejects it. Because if you do, the result will be that you remain in slavery to sin and eternally guilty before God who is judged. Many of us are gathered here today because by God's grace we are people who have been appointed to eternal life and we have believed, right? We have received and we rejoice in it. Yes, (laughs) yes, our past is a mess. And yes, we don't have it nearly as all together as we try to make people think we do, right? That's true. But just like the Gentiles who always probably felt a sense of being less than, the good news that we believe is that this good news is not just for some people, but for all of us. So it said in verse 38, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. If you have received this good news, if you have received Jesus as Savior, then our response is to rejoice in what Jesus has done. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to prepare for communion by singing a song that is a good reminder of what Christ has done for us and calls us to join our voices in praise together. Let's pray. Oh, we are amazed, Father, at your great love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly dying for us in our place. Thank you for appointing undeserving sinners like us to eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly bearing our sins and the wrath of the Father in our place. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for dwelling in us. Thankful that your word says the Holy Spirit is like a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We are unworthy to receive it, but... You willingly give it to us, and we are grateful.
We're humbled by our sin. We rejoice in our salvation. And our hearts cry out, Hallelujah, praise and honor unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to encourage you guys to just stay.